back, and we 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 back, hey, this ain't no intro, this the entree, hit that intro with Kanye, I sound like Andre, tryna turn my baby mama to my fiance, she like music, she from Houston, like Auntie Yonsei, man, my daughter couldn't have a better mother, if she ever find another, you better love her, man, I swear my life is crazy. Well, we are back, it is October 18th, 2020, uh, this is the Two Reluctant Cogs podcast. And uh, I'm Trevor in Austin, Texas. And this is Cy calling in from, uh, where am I? I'm in Thomaston, Maine, and it's uh, I'm your resident climate imperialist. <laughs> climate imperialist. All right, tell me about climate imperialism. <laughs> it's the newest thing, newest thing out in the web right now, and I'm leading the charge. At the end of the day, we have to recognize that uh, climate is a global problem. And it's going to require global solutions. Uh, the petty, the petty and kind of archaic uh, network of small nation states is just never going to cut it. And so we need a enlightened, modern, technocratic imperialism to impose good climate solutions on the uh, on the majority of the world. Okay. Now, do you have a uh, <laughs> a sort of political structure envisioned to uh, exude this climate imperialism? Or oh yeah, I'm, I'm is thinking this a like dictator, um, philosopher, king, democracy, social democracy. I'm thinking like British imperialism, but just like instead of like the underlying thing being the enrichment of Britain, it being the imposition of carbon reduction. Carbon reduction exclusively. So uh, this, so you know, not really concerned about local ecological change. We can you know. It still includes mountaintop removal and like strip mining to build all the solar panels and everything, right? Well, and that's just a that's a that's a technocratic problem to solve. Um, okay. You know, uh, we you know whether it the the specific layout is less important than the political solution comes first. Meaning, we have a system by which once it once we we have this political sol- solution in place. Now we can just turn it over to the scientific experts, engineering experts that can just solve the problem and tell us which which is the best way to go. But oh, that's, that's, as, that's as we all as we all know, the politics comes first, uh, obviously within this country, but also I think um, overseas. You know, there's like prisoners dilemma situation with climate climate policy and uh, if you know an you know an imperial uh, mechanism by which we get grant significant autonomy at the local level outside of the domain of our interests, which would be climate, climate policy, I think would be the most effective way to like get the whole world, not just uh, our local uh, local areas under a move forward climate policy. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to see you bring about this, uh, the imperial reign. Um, yep. And so I think that, that that sort of segues nicely into what we're going to be talking about today, which is Orwell's uh, politics in the English language, because uh, I think really in order to affect uh, a true global climate imperialist system, we will need a powerful language to support this, uh, this political movement. Well, I think, I think as we get into this, we'll, we'll, you'll find that my shtick that I just ran through right there with 
without a doubt, would fall under the abuse of the English language category <laughs> by Orwell. <laughs> the way, you know, it's like, you can you can turn, I mean, the, the, the all-time most classic quote from that essay is, uh, what is it, at the, at the end they say, he says, uh, political language is designed to make lies truthful and murder respectable. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, political language is designed to make empires seem completely fine because of uh, because of other concerns yeah. uh. <laughs> don't, believe don't believe your lying eyes yeah um uh, yeah so we'll get okay into that. we'll get into that in a moment i think uh just a few administrative notes first and then uh maybe we'll do a little roundup so it's been i think six months since the last well it's it's been a week since the last recording but it's been six yeah. months since the last podcast we've done two episode 12s uh that have you know like uh orwell's uh you know language uh that he hates it have been sort of consigned to the dustbin of history these episodes <laughs> um either through technical well yeah exclusively because of of technical concerns uh which again i don't think bodes well for your your technocratic imperialist uh system but <laughs> Um, well, at the very least, we will not be at the top of the pecking order, evidently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Far wiser people than us will will be leading the charge. Uh, yeah, so I, I had two audio files that were just completely corrupted. Uh, the last one, the one from last week, was particularly uh, comedic in that um, it seemed like I had I had a successful audio file on my end and. When I looked, I was like, oh, that was only a 30-minute podcast. And so I was like, no, 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 dude, we just talked for two hours. And I was like, what? And so I looked at this Audacity file that's being recorded, and somehow, in the middle of the podcast, my mic decided, you know what, let's just compress everything you're saying into one-hundredth of the speed. So and two hours was compressed into 20 minutes of recording. So I sounded like um, just some high-pitched chipmunk moving at a, a mile a minute, and I tried editing it, but it was really a lost cause, and we gave up, we threw it away. Um, so, we're back. But we're it's back, been, yeah. Yeah, we're back this week, and I think we're excited about this week's episode. Yeah, yeah, and so let's cover some of the political ground, briefly, before we get into the Orwell essay. So, yeah. where, where did last, we last record? Well, last week we talked about the, or two weeks ago we talked about on the ghost episode, the episode lost to history. Um, uh, we talked debate, presidential debate, and then within two days after the presidential debate, Trump getting coronavirus. Uh, that's two weeks ago, so that's also now ancient history. Um, what's what, what, you know? What's what are the headlines right now? I'm trying to think. It seems like it's been a bit slow. Yeah. Oh I no! Think it's the calm before I guess the storm. Yeah. Oh, well, you Trump's back Biden? on the campaign trail. Yeah, Trump's yeah, back on the right. campaign trail. So that's, you know, Trump got better. You and I were talking. I was like, dude, he's going to be out for at least two weeks, right? Like, once you get coronavirus, aren't you supposed to isolate for two weeks? That's like what everybody in the country nah, knows. Not this guy. Trump's like, <laughs> Trump's like, no. Two days at Walter Reed and I'm back on the campaign trail. <laughs> it's like. Just snorted some Regeneron and he's just he's hyped up. <laughs> he's never felt better. He's, he's ready weird. to do this. Yeah, yeah, he's immune. He's telling everyone he's got a cure. We got a cure for coronavirus, even though the vaccines haven't come out yet and we haven't tested any vaccines. He's like, I'm comfortable calling it a cure. I feel good. And I'm com- yeah, and I f- nobody should be scared. We've got great medicine because I went to the Walter Reed and got the world's best medicine possible. And I can assure you, 
coronavirus is nothing to fe- nothing to fear. <laughs> yeah. So let me just. I, I guess since the last time we recorded, we had uh, a bunch of there were a bunch of Democratic. We were in the Demi- Democratic primary, I believe. I don't know if we even recorded uh, Biden as the winner. Maybe we did. Maybe we had an episode where Biden won and became the candidate. Um, then you know, I guess we did have one uh, COVID. You know. <laughs> COVID episode. I think the last one we did was sort of at the beginning of the COVID crisis. So obviously it's just been months of the world dealing with that. Um, And, you know, I don't, it seems like, I guess on the COVID front that, I mean, now I don't want to, I'm not well read on this now, but so I don't want to, you know, speak out of turn here, but it does seem like the, the overall severity of someone contracting COVID provided their comorbidities aren't insane has gotten better like or we've we've been able to within the hospital system been able to handle people with covid and treat them and get them out of the hospital but people are still dying people are still getting sick only about uh you know 10% of the US has gotten it so far so we got 90% just waiting for the virus to come and take them um <laughs> unclear uh you know if we are going to enact any policy to sort of reduce that it does seem like you the u.s at least i could speak to and certainly in texas people are sending it people are are cool people have have evaluated the risks and they decided they're going out to restaurants they're going out to bars they're going to have a good time and if they get sick I'll, i'll see you in the hospital send me a get well get well card that seems to be the attitude down here well uh yeah i think um i think i feel like any kind of shock at all around, you know, the fear, shock and fear, I should say, that all uh, around this has seems to have worn off. And on average, people tend to be more more comfortable with the risk as the surge of it has kind of gone, gone down and as the fear and panic around over maxed out hospitals and, and, and the like has, you know, resided. Um, for example, like back in March, New York City hospital was like system was getting maxed out and people were freaking out like this was going to yeah. come to everywhere. And then it turned out that was like a one time, it seemed to be a one time phenomenon um, for, for a series of reasons, which I don't think anybody really understands yet why, uh, why it got so, you know, the surge was so significant in New York City for that period and then has since just fallen off like crazy. Now, partially probably because of all the measures, social distancing, masks, blah, blah, blah. Partially, we know how to treat it better once people have it in the hospitals. Partially, we know how to not spread the disease more effectively. Um, you know, like in New York City, there was like a lot of transmission going from hospitals to elderly homes because people were moving out of hospitals into elderly homes without being tested and it was chaos. Um, that was the so infamous a whole Cuomo decision, right? It was well, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, these people are, are, these old people have it, but, you know, we've stabilized them, send them back to the nursing home. Yeah, well, you know. Or something like I, that. I don't remember. I just know it's something that Trump's been tweeting about, I, I won't, I haven't followed. Yeah, I won't, ta- I won't take it too hard on him because, you know, in the heat of it, things, decisions, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh But, whatever. Uh, there's no moral high ground for anybody on this, in no. this debate. I'm, so, I, that's the key point. Um everybody's like just just trust the scientists it's like well the scientists don't know anything either and they never did so um <laughs> i mean i mean i think but, it's you know they know but, they knew a know, little bit we, more but yeah everybody you know calibrate their assumptions and as they went 
uh, whereas Trump has just been shooting from the hip since day one. Yeah, he has been. But uh, yeah, and I think it's fair also for people to figure like, all right, well, like, like I'm up in Maine. There's a couple hundred active cases in Maine, and there has been for six months straight. There's been no hospital surge. There's been no kind of like rapid outbreaks of community spread. We've had tourists and out-of-state people come here all summer, and it's been fairly well contained. And so people in Maine are looking around going, like, you know, my county, there's been one case, two cases every once in a while. Like, but on what basis should we not, maybe not go all out in terms of, like, returning to the norms that we're used to, but at the very least, um, you know, shifting that boundary closer to returning to normal. Uh, I think that's a fine. Everybody has to mediate that a little differently. You don't think government should decide when it's safe for every single person? Well, I think governments have shown <laughs> themselves to be ineffective, even with the best intentions. So, you know, everybody, you know, no matter what the government says, people are still not having to mediate it, like, within the household, family to family, household to household. Who do you see? What friends do you see? I think that just requires more granular uh, regulation, you know, like everyone should have to submit a social schedule to a local COVID authority. Um, An app. Get it approved, authorized. Have an AI. I mean, you just have an app that solves all this stuff and decides based on your health (laughs) statistics. Everybody has has an Apple Watch that monitors your comorbidities and your Apple Calendar that checks your schedule and your social network that identifies all the people that you're interacting with and can solve all this pretty quickly and then just solve everything really dude you know what is one of the i mean i know people have been talking about you know some of the rapid or the lasting change that's going to happen from uh this the COVID period but one of the funny things about it is that it does reveal a lot of useless processes and formalities that uh, have existed in our political and i think corporate bureaucracies You know, um, obviously the work from home is the big one, you know, uh, where I think people are like just not going to go back to the office or as certainly not as much as they used to. But on the government side, you know, um, I uh, I had to do a a hearing with the New York, the city of New York because of breaking my foot uh, on that rebel scooter. Um, And, you know, I put in a claim with the with the city that was like, hey, you had a huge pothole not knowing like how this was going to play out. But I was like, hey, there was a huge pothole and you know, I wrecked my foot because of it. And they had a little portal uh, where you could submit a claim and then blah, blah, blah. But I think the general process <coughs> involves a lot of mailing back and forth of official forms. It involves sort of in-person hearings and everything. Um, and I just got an email from New York. This was like maybe a month or two ago at this, at this point. But they were like, hey, just call into the Zoom. And just tell us that, you know, you think this stuff is, is correct. Um, and so I called in. It was like five minutes. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, this is me. And uh, what I said was, is true. And they're like, okay, that's all we need. And it just like reveals, you know, and I think you're seeing that with like traffic courts. You're seeing that with like interviews. You're seeing that with just sort of all across the board. We had so many processes on the books where it was like, no, you need to bring this form to an actual government official in this government building and they need to stamp it and then you take the stamped form over to this other government building where then they will stamp it whether it's like visas or you know whatever all this stuff now it's just like people on zoom like yeah yeah no it's me i'm looking for this thing and people like yeah yeah you're good and just we've just 
you culled a lot of the fat, cut a lot of the fat off of these processes out of necessity. And it's it's hard to imagine going back to like, no, 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 we're going back to the stamp and paper process after this. We know we just did it yeah. officially online and saved everyone a bunch of time and money. But no, 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 we're going to go back to the old way. I, it's hard to yeah. believe that we'll, well do it's that. Just like, it's just like a big, uh, that's all just like inherited and going along with momentum, uh, inertia, and there's no good reason to shift out of it. And now all of a sudden there's this national global emergency. Well, that's a good enough reason to shift out of it. We need to adapt. And that, you know, we could have always done that. We could have always yeah. adapted and adjusted things. Yeah. It just, there wasn't a good enough reason to like shock us out of the system. And now we do. And uh, we'll settle into this. And then, you know, 20 years from now, people will be like, well, why are we still doing these stupid Zoom calls? I could just X, Y, or Z. And it'll take another thing to get us, you know, take another leap. Yeah. But that's, gov- That's you know, you could say bureaucratically, it seems like that's pretty standard bureaucratic <laughs> uh, decision making. And, like, that's just the way bureaucracies work. <laughs> they, yeah. They, yeah. Uh, um, you know, that's just the natural yeah. rhythm of them. So, I mean, besides the long-lasting COVID effects uh, and how, I guess, societies have adapted to that, we had the, you know, as I mentioned, we had our first presidential debate. It was pretty much a shit show. Uh, and then Donald Trump got COVID, which was the sweetest karmic justice I could have ever imagined. And I do want to just spend a moment on the presidential campaign because since that, that like, two-week stretch where going into the debate... Um, and then the way he performed and then contracting the disease, his poll numbers nationally. Now, Biden's been winning in the national polls for a while, as was Hillary, obviously. But um, after that, like sort of, you know, performance in the debate and then actually contracting the disease. And I feel like Donald Trump has the loser stink on him. And I feel like the nation like there's this is not about policy. This is not about, you know, anything else. You know, I just feel like. America doesn't like a loser, and I feel like he kind of has that that like loser stink on him, if that makes sense. Like I feel like his he's had to, he's sort of shifted from being like out in front driving the narrative to being more of a reactive type uh, of person. Well, you know he can't be as hard on the no mask stuff. He can't be as hard on the COVID isn't real thing, and it just kind of revealed a lot of his bluster to be empty. As many people knew it was, but you know I just. Since then, his messaging has gotten a, seemingly a lot more desperate. The way he, he's done, I don't know if you've seen some of his clips, but he hasn't quite reduced himself to the Jeb Bush uh, please clap. But he has been, he was doing these videos on the White House lawn where he's like, seniors, seniors, come on, you know, I'm a senior. I mean, you know, don't tell anyone, but, you know, you're vulnerable, but you're not vulnerable. And, you know, I, I see you don't like me as much as you used to. And just come on, come on, I'll give you free stuff. Or suburban women, come on, please. Yeah. Like, I need, I I need will, suburban yeah. women. Why don't you like me? What's going on? I think, um, I think you know, prior to the debate, I if you'd asked me, I would have said I'm like fifty fifty. I'm pretty nervous. Um, I think the the politics of the summer were, were centered around you know racial justice, the the, the protests, the uh, the riots, the outrage, the counter outrage, the meta outrage. You know. Um, the lens by which people were talking about things, the the wokeness movement on what what the right would call it, on the left they would just call it, you know, Black Lives Matter or you know, justice for these communities. Um, so that dominated the headlines, and quite frankly, I think Trump enjoyed that. He thought that was good politics for him. He like 
he needled it, he needled it, and like instigated it in terms of his messaging. And I think he he thought that was playing to playing to his advantage. And I think probably whether I like it or not, I think he was probably right. Uh, that, that politically, tactically, was probably working somewhat in his favor. I'm not sure if it was enough to make him win, but it was certainly working in his favor. I felt like, um, and then that cooled off. I see that scene that 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 conversation is like cooled off to a certain degree for better or for worse you might argue uh but nonetheless it has and we came into the debate and trump was kind of riding high i felt like we people were expecting trump to kind of stunt stunt on biden and he just came in way too hot and way he too came hot in, way too hot he came in he he showed himself to be as naive as a as cynical and ridiculous and you know uh just lacking in character in the way he conducted himself, conducting himself like a you know very juvenile behavior, and um, so that was like the combined debate performance, like you said, the coronavirus, him getting and, it, and the cosmic and giving it to everyone, make, yeah, <laughs> everyone in the make, yeah, everyone yeah, in the, the whole, White House like, getting it, like you said, revealing incompetence, revealing like the hollowness of his kind of. Uh, so I think I think I'm not sure you know where he stands now, but I do think or my personal perception is that it's shifted favorably in Biden's direction the last three weeks. Um, that That's just the way I'm, I see it. I, I haven't looked at any polls. I don't know any data, but that's just my read of the situation. I think a lot of people, anybody who was on the side, on one side or the other, or was still like thinking about it, I think that did not help him. And I also think it just motivated the, the liberals and the, the left and that the coalition that's voting for Biden just to like, double down and triple down in terms of their enthusiasm and their, in terms of their commitment and righteousness and like they're motivated they're even more motivated than they were before they feel like they've got the they, like you said they're sm- they smell blood in the water and they're like uh they're trying to trying to seal the deal here so we'll see i mean it's it's october 18th uh the election is in what um a couple weeks yeah is two in weeks three weeks basically two weeks two weeks and a few days so who knows what headlines will pop up between now and then you know that could shift things but my you know the biggest headline that has come to come to the fore now is uh the biden it was like you know it's like a rerun of 2016 right before the election some data gets leaked um and one side calls it disinformation and misinformation and the other side calls it uh important reporting to the to the election something to do. i haven't even read the articles because i just don't care quite frankly so take this for for what it is but something to do with biden and his son and um blah 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 giuliani's involved of course uh somehow the russians are involved just because people will say <laughs> the russians are involved with everything at this point and um it just seems well, to know, me Putin's like sponsoring this podcast. I, I i feel i feel like i feel like the whole country is just so immune to this sort of this whole domain of conversation Across it's, politics, across political uh, lines, like <laughs> nobody cares about like Russian like related information or scandal or po- like just nobody cares. Like there's it's like that's all we've talked about for four years, and just and it's it's both sides have accused both sides of every possible crime and behavior and conduct and everything that has possibly been leaked has been leaked. It's just like both sides are just so fed up with this that this doesn't move the needle. Like in 2016, like a big leaking of things and Russians getting involved was like. It was Ooh, brand new. Yeah. Nobody had seen yeah, this before. This is spicy political. Yeah. Now it's just like, well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, what's next? It's like I can't imagine anybody thinks this is all is 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 
important enough to move the needle in any sort of decision making and any sort of turnout questions, um, the things that move the move move election outcomes. It's, I just can't imagine it changing anything. So it seems a little like, eh, that's your big surprise. That's that's not much. So what's next? What's coming up next? And and we'll see. You know, I don't, you know, it's two weeks. You never know. Of course, you never know. It's two weeks, and uh, it'll be an interesting two weeks. I I think what I'd like to ask you, Trevor, is uh, two weeks aside, November eighth comes. Is it the eighth, the third. Christmas? I think third. Third. Uh, third. Third comes. Uh, what are your What are your odds of What are you, Where are you placing the odds of disputed election and or you know post election violence? Whoa. Yeah. So I I don't I my I feel take like there's right a lot of tension around this. Yeah. Yeah. My Go take ahead. right now is that it's going to be an absolute ass kicking in the the election. I think Trump's going to just get uh, smoked. Um, and big, pretty, big, big blue wave, big blue wave. Now, so what? What's? I'm very interested in what happens next, because I, th- I, I, I think, think I, I think. Pause real quick. Blue yeah. wave is if a big blue wave makes the election less disputable, and I yeah. think like reduces tension, kind of like uh, outside of the normal distribution of outcomes, te- risks go way down. Like we're. we're, we're it just is way more solid. Like the transition happened, everybody just moves on. Uh, I I feel like that's my my read there. That there's less risk for fallout if it's convincing rather than if it's tight. Yeah, I agree. And I so I think just from a, a structural uh, you know stability perspective, it's a incredible outcome if we get that. If we get a decisive positive, win, yeah. yeah, very very positive to just not have anything remotely contested. Um, so I think Trump's going to, sure. you know, he's going to decry and blame and, and complain. But ultimately, he's going to have to concede. Republicans are going to come out and say, like, yeah, he, he lost. And, like, we don't agree with the president's protestations. And I think there might be some, like, uptick in, you know, I, well, I would say there's definitely going to be an uptick in the Trump supporters are here. They're not going anywhere. Like, we've got this loud uh, minority of people and, and big minority, a sizable minority of people who are never, uh, never die, never say die Trumpers. And um, so I think we're going to see protests from them. I think we're, there might there might be a hint of political violence even. You know, tensions are high and we've already seen. I tend to think, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like they just don't protest well. Like the left protests well, like moves, gets bodies into the streets and organizers like yeah yes, i don't think it's there gonna be are, protests there are trump it's... protests like you know you see them but they just re- never uh, ma- get the mass because they're more like you never get the masses of people together in trump protests that you do in like anti-trump or left liberal cause protests you just don't get the bodies that you would so i just don't see them rallying in a way that's significant i could see them like holding like kind of like weird little like gatherings like you know like militia yeah. style gatherings but i yeah. if uh, again if it's it's i i get more concerned if it's tight and if it's drawn out and there's they're counting mail-in ballots and there's states are doing recounts like that's where it starts to get sketchy for me and i start to think that that the right those like elements of the of the right-wing coalition might get ugly 
Yeah, totally. And I so I think, you know, we're probably going to be pretty safe for that. We might have another, I don't know if you remember when those militia members took over that, like, Oregon State Park yeah, uh, yeah. lodge. We might get something like that. It was pretty hilarious, uh, you know, giving each other COVID in some, like, bunker somewhere saying, like, no, we still believe Trump's our president. We're not going to respect a Biden presidency. And, you know, yeah, like the local like, authorities yeah. will just, like, let it fizzle out. But I think what's, so that's, that's a, you know, I think immediately after the election we get, that's going to be interesting. Fascinated by what happens to Trump personally after this, whether these lawsuits and criminal cases against him actually bear fruit or whether those sort of wither out and the nation just kind of turns its eyes away from him and he goes back to just being some blustering Twitter personality. Does he start a media network and start rallying these people? And that's how he spends the rest of his dying years is just taking money from the people he, you know, pulled into his influence um, yeah. to support some does media like, network. Does he have, or does he become part of Fox News or something ridiculous? Or Oh, I think he yeah. hates Fox News now. I think he's he's OAN, and I think, you know, maybe even buys OAN or, like, yeah, takes some good ownership stake there. You know, he's Chris Wallace and everyone, and, you know, he's, he's seen. The other thing is Fox News is going to have to go through a transition away from the Trumpist uh, yeah, well, rhetoric. Fox News, like, yeah, they, they, it's money, and they gotta read the, they gotta read the, the political tea leaves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they gotta go back to like super... wherever McConnell is, and wherever yeah. you know the remaining political, yeah, Republicans are. Um, yeah. So what's and, then? So aside from like that, Trump, you know, if he gets, if and he then, gets and then I'll just, I'll just say one, one, yeah. one point. There's also the risk that you know, there's also the scenario in which Trump wins. Yeah, well, that's like I mean I can't even and, imagine the world in four years. I, I really yeah. don't know where we're at, where we are as a, a nation. After but that. I do think I mean I do think the 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 political violence is so like the political tension will be intense. If oh that yeah. Happens, oh happens. yeah, it'll be brutal. Yeah. There will be significant protests in the cities. There'll be significant. You know, it's like you know, it's going to be there was pro- massive protests in 2016 when he won. Not protests, but just like rallies and stuff. Big big marches and stuff and that's uh, going to be like that times two if uh if he wins again this year so i i that's you know it's gonna be ugly and we'll see what happens there yeah god forbid i mean that's gonna uh, that might even be worse than a contested election because a contested election you're you're looking at like a short well depending on how it shakes out honestly if it's a contested election and then you know and it, and contested election is not good never no yeah you're right you're right never mind that's probably going to be worse but if it's uh yeah <laughs> that's worst case scenario no we can't have that we can't have that. yeah um, it's, if trump wins it's just like it's just going to be like it's just going to be like oh my god here we go it's like i i really don't want that <laughs> I, just, I just can't imagine four more years of this dude it's just like i cannot do it, it seems unfathomable but of course it's like it's you know it's a fifty fifty chance right now. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, maybe a little. Maybe it's sixty forty Biden, but like, at it's best, not ninety ten. <laughs> yeah, it's like very possible, and it's a scary outcome. And the fact that it's so reasonably likely that uh, that he actually wins another four years is is it's it's mind boggling. Even if it is ninety ten, I mean, if you've ever played poker and waited for that last uh, heart to complete your flush on the river. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know you can hit that. You know that's yeah. like a, a, a 10% chance is a real chance. And, and we all know that Hillary Clinton had 99% chance of winning in 2016. And yeah. How that went. How that went. <laughs> so I, I want to we'll move on to Orwell, but I just want to say, you know, if the polls hold, it looks like Biden's going to win. It looks like we're going to have a blue wave in the House and Senate. And so I know you must be looking forward to 
you know, within the next two years. Um, fixing, you know, having a universal health care, universal basic income, fixing the climate and bringing race, racial justice to the United States finally. Um, so it's pretty exciting to get all of those things with this new majority. Oh, yeah. So we're all looking forward to the Democratic reign. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure there will be, um, you know, assuming the Democrats have control of these various bodies like uh, like they very well may may do. Uh, there's absolutely no reason the Democrats won't. Uh, you know, bring bring peace and justice and uh, goodness to the world like they've always said they they will. So I'm actually looking forward to that. Yeah, for sure. And what I'm also, think? but I, and I'm I'm being sarcastic there, obviously. But I, um, of course, uh, it'll be a shit show. It'll be a disaster. Blah blah blah. And of course, the Republicans will take back the Senate and the House. You know, within four years, maybe at most. Um, it's just the way opposition politics goes. What I'm interested in is how you know where the Republican Party goes in that situation. How does it reform? You know, where does the messaging go? Where do the politics go? Who becomes the leadership? Who becomes the nominee? I think, Romney. I think this is Mitt Romney's moment, dude. I really, I've been yeah, watching. So, He's been really positioning himself as like the the moral authority for the Republican Party well, in a really helpful way. I, I feel, mean, I feel, uh, ba- I feel bad for the Democrats in twenty twenty four when they have to run Kamala Kamala Buttigieg against against Haley Haley Romney. That's you're gonna have a bad time. You know, <laughs> Kamala Buttigieg, twenty twenty four versus uh, Haley Romney, twenty twenty four. You don't think Beto's going to sneak in there? You don't think we're going to have President <laughs> Beto skateboarding into the White House? <laughs> I think he's going to fade into the dustbin. Oh, but, uh, y'all! I mean, yeah, I, I, without a doubt, that is. I think that's going to be the one. If should Biden win, you know, whatever the Democrats do, that's like it's going to be whatever shit show. You know, guess what? It's still Nancy Pelosi leading the, sh- the show in the House and just Chuck Schumer in the Senate. Like, have fun with those two bozos. Um, so you tell so, me. Let me let me give you the three top yeah, Democratic the three, the, issues the, and you tell me which one no, is, most, no, is the least just, likely. Just, 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 just think about this. Sorry, I just have to – it's going to be Joe Biden in the White House, Chuck Schumer in the Senate, and Nancy Pelosi in the House. Those are the three top Democratic officials. The in holy triumph. Yeah, that's like the, yeah, exactly. And that's like, the, that's our savior. Those three bows, boneheads. Oh my God. Give me a break. But nonetheless, I don't, I still, I'm still rooting for that. Here I am. Actually, I'm not. I'm hoping that Joe Biden takes the house, takes, takes the presidency, Democrats keep the house and Republicans keep the Senate. That's my like best case scenario. Yeah. But, um, just cause, okay. uh, I love, you know, I love, I love deadlock, but, um, I Dude, see, I, I'm. Oh man, we need to but, do a whole thing on like our structural issues, but okay, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love if we had a functional legislature, and uh, but oh, totally, yeah, you know, and the deadlock is honestly I would like harder to, I, than I, almost I w- any other issue. I would like to talk about why the why has our legislative branch become a piece of shit? Quite frankly, <laughs> or. Uh, or why has it become so ineffective and so deadlocked and so it's just yeah and so seemingly incapable of fulfilling the basic you know, functions of the job, or just like negotiating the tensions? Like of course they can't do anything except pass there's, budgets. There's, yeah, and like defense bills. Like and yeah, um, you know, like of course there's big facts of the chunks of the country that disagree on issues, but like let's just like solve like incremental problems, like you know, and solve like where we agree, like pass stuff there, and like you know, like. There seems like there's just a way less legislation being passed in general. Like just nothing's happening. It's nothing just, happens. Nothing happens. It's just like every we pass like one year spending bills and one year defense appropriation bills, and that's like all the legislature branch does at this point. 
and everyone shoves um, all of their policies into these bills, and that's what gets held up. Is like because yeah, it's like so, in, rather than doing maybe. It, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, maybe, but we yeah. can we can go into that. That I I would maybe that's another podcast episode. Yeah, that right? definitely is. But before we move to Orwell, so let me give you. I want to hear your take. So you know, comprehensive energy and infrastructure bill that addresses climate change in a meaningful way as option one a Univer- a, a sort of green new deal maybe not the uh, yeah. quote green new, but like a green deal of some sort yeah, green infrastructure yeah. deal yeah okay so i'm gonna give you that i'm gonna give you uh universal health care where of, uh, of we, some, we fix of some the, variety yeah and we fix the medical that we fix the you know the health insurance medical industry all the issues it's that plague this country it's okay. Well, never in a million years will that happen. Go to any other country; they're still bitching and complaining about their healthcare <laughs> system. It's just maybe marginally less. Okay, less all right. Shitty. So then, just comprehensive but universal healthcare. Sure. Yes, yeah, of some variety. Yep. Okay. Of some variety, yep. and then yep. number th- number three is going to be uh, obviously a comprehensive, you know, a r- racial justice bill of some sort that okay. addresses the systemic criminal justice, not and then That's also. Not happening. Which give me rank those for me. What is okay? What is so it? I would be I would be shocked if they don't pass some sort of uh, racial justice bill. But I would suspect it's going to be largely toothless and symbolic uh, because I don't think the Democratic leadership or the Democratic Party as a whole has really thought about this rigorously and has oh, you don't a think way. So? I I think it's mostly <laughs> just like they're, they're just like drafting off of like honest to god emotion at the local and individual level, which is real and drafting off it and converting it into political gains and don't really actually know what they've know or understand the, the what's actually, you know, what, what would be required to actually translate that into like concrete political objectives and bills and whatever. So I'm I shocked think, you don't think Nancy Pelosi has a plan for <laughs> racial justice. Yeah. I mean, I think Biden like means well, but like, it's like, what are they going to do? Pass a reparations bill? Like that's fine if that's what you want to do, but that's like a, extremely complicated process um and i think unlikely to unlikely to be worth their political capital i think they will go after healthcare first and foremost uh, i think some people want it to be climate change but i feel like they recognize healthcare as like their bread and butter and um i wouldn't be you know i think they're i think they have to go there first i wouldn't be surprised if they pass a climate bill of some sort i think they ought to i think it'll probably be way less ambitious than the kind of Green New Deal that, you know, was proposed. And that's probably a good thing. Um, but I think I would, I would be, I would, if they actually do sweep the things, I, I would expect some movement on all three of those. I'd say healthcare first, Green New Deal second, and a superficial symbolic, you know, racial justice, uh, police reform bill would get through. You think we get an Indigenous re- People's Day? Uh, no, I don't really think... <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's good, great. I would actually like, I think it would be sweet. I, I was, I've been talking to my dad, who's obviously conservative. I'm like, listen, dad, how about this? I wonder if the, they make this deal. Voting day, move Indigenous Peoples Day, name it Indigenous Peoples Day, and move it to Election Day. So that Election Day, November 3rd, moving forward, every year is a national holiday. Um, everybody gets it off. Uh, so it's not a new holiday. We've shifted indigenous to the election tax. That's good. Um, and also, but also in exchange, uh, voting voting IDs are made made. You're allowed to do voting IDs. Does the government 
still charge people for these IDs. That's not, well, let's not get into voter ID laws. But I'm still, but yeah, so, okay, fine. Yeah, like, so well, you're, I, you're trying I, to find I some always, small issues on either side that you can you can take on the role of the legislature. Like let's where let's, you're let's doing let's the boost, incremental change on these small things and trying let's to bridge boost the gap. Turnout, yeah. Boost turnout significantly by national holiday on voting day, so that way more people will vote. I think that's a win for the Democrats. I think they would like that. I think they've said that they would like that. Um, and it was a win for the Republicans by being like, yeah, now there's voter IDs. And you, know, you have to have an ID in order to vote, prove who you are, um, blah, blah, blah. But who cares? Uh, moving along. That's never going to happen. I'm, it's mostly a fantasy and a joke. Um, let's, let's pivot. Let's do Orwell. Let's, uh, let's do Orwell, yeah. Because I think this stuff, that sort of stuff is all fun in games. It's mostly just fun and trivial games. In two weeks, all of our takes will be... Uh, yeah, worth nothing. Worth nothing, yeah. Dust in the so, wind. So I, I'm going to say, so the, the, the essay is, is called Politics in the English Language. And this is something that Sai told me to read when he was down here uh, visiting uh, the great state of Texas. And, you know, I, I filed it away and I finally picked up, I've got a book of Orwell essays that I've read a few from and I noticed that it was in here. So I read it and it was like, actually a very impactful experience for me. In reading it, I got very both excited. He hit on a bunch of things that uh, and put you know, a, a fine point to a lot of different issues that I've sort of thought about vaguely for a while. And overall, I just fucking love this. And so I was like, all right, we gotta talk about this. It was written in, I think, 1946, April of 1946. Um, but why don't we start with, uh, why don't you give a, a sort of high level summary of the essay, Politics in the English Language, and then we can sort of talk about the various sections and, you know, and then I think ultimately, what would Orwell say in 2020? How would he have written it this now? I think it's a very interesting uh, question. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I'm a, we probably should talk about Orwell more often, though. I guess I probably bring him up pretty frequently. I, I've, you know, everybody reads 1984, um, or most people read it 1984. They know Orwell. Like that's where you, when you hear Orwellian, like that's just what Orwell's single biggest legacy is. But um, he has so much more to offer. In his writing uh, beyond 1984 and beyond Animal Farm, his his books and novels are his books on like the Spanish Civil War, Spanish Civil War, the industrial kind of like industrial wastelands of like Northern England in the like 1940s, uh, the like the the um, under underground living of vagabonds and the underclass in Paris and London in the mid mid century, um, his experiences in British Imperial Burma as a policeman he's got so much writing on this on those fronts that's just it's just eye-opening and it's it's consistently insightful consistently evokes like clarity and uh, and moral moral clarity in a way that i you know i i only person i compare him with is albert camus in terms of the hell yeah yeah their their ability to like somehow just find the right uh their you know be on the right side of issues consistently and to speak with clarity and moral, you know, with significant more clear, moral and literary clarity. So it's like he, he not only is he clear on what is right and wrong, but also is able to articulate it in ways that makes it clear to the reader um, consistently. And that's so, a really interesting what, way to say it because that's what this essay is all about. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, this is probably his most famous essay, you know, outside of the books he's written, of all of his essays, this is probably his most famous essay. 
that line that I quoted earlier comes at the end of the essay. I'll just say it again uh, because it is so good. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solid solidity to pure wind. Um, that You'll hear that quoted all the time, and it's just like, and it's so true. Now, of course, the question is, whose political language? Because, <laughs> of course, everybody goes, no, their political language is like that. My political language is legit. Um, and, of course, you know, of course, that's not, never true. But um, so I'll just, like, start at the top a little bit and kind of, like, work through the structure. I think it's interesting because it's this mix of, um, it's this mix of, like, practical, like, this is how you ought to write kind of stuff um and and then also some like more kind of philosophical thoughts about how truth and language are connected and politics and truth and language are connected so um you know most people who bother with the matter at all with the matter at all would admit that the english language is in a bad way uh that's the opening sentence <laughs> opening sentence and so he basically goes you know today's english is is decayed uh, poor obtuse hard to understand, vague, um, vague, uh, are a lot of the words he uses to describe this. Uh, and he, he, he lists off a bunch of examples of some terrible writing that he, and he says, this isn't even the worst stuff. This is basically average stuff that you can find anywhere. And he goes through and just like, nit, nit, you know, picks it apart and explains why it's so bad. Yeah. These are um, writers of the time writing. He, he picks apart other political essayists and you know art historians and art critic you know criticists i don't know yep. if that's a word um, so he's got yeah, three takes an example of their writing and just shreds it yeah he goes the all these passages has its own faults but there's also a lot of common qualities staleness of imagery and lack of precision so a mixture precision, of precision is a huge theme for him and i i think yep. like you know and um, being explicit yeah. and he, he he cares very clearly and he uses concrete now, I don't actually know if concrete is a metaphor or not. Um, I would be interested in learning the answer on that question. <laughs> but, um, you know, using bad... So it's precision is important. Um, and how do you get to precision? By not using stale imagery or by using just inherited uh, t uses like phraseologies and, and metaphors and idioms that are just like passed down and accepted as commonly used and then you just turn around and regurgitate them i think that is like a key thing that he talks about as as as, as being a problem with current english language now uh more and more of phrases tacked together like sections of a prefabricated hen house so the idea like of you know language just be, people's language just being so so Build up and composed of these pre pre delivered pre organized like this like turns of turns of phrase. Uh, yeah, so he's, he gets that, really he fixated strings on. Of, yeah, yeah. So like, and so he, got, he also uses dying metaphors. So like metaphors that are that are no longer relevant, but are still. What's an used. example of one? What's an example so of he a goes dying metaphor? Ex okay, so. Um, Ring the changes on, take up the cudgels full, toe the line, ride roughshod over, stand shoulder to shoulder with, play into the hands of, an axe to grind, grist to the mill, fishing in troubled water, waters, Achilles heel, swan song, hot bed. Many of these are used without knowledge of their meaning, 
and incompatible metaphors are frequently mixed, which is a sure, sure sign that the writer is not interested in what he is saying. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is like, I just want to spend a moment on uh, the metaphors and on stringing together these empty phrases because the metaphors are, first of all, it's hilarious because who doesn't use today the word, oh, that's his Achilles heel. Oh, that's the, you know, uh, what if some ride roughshod over? I mean, some of these are a bit dated, but you can toe the line is another one. Like the Republicans need to toe the line on this bill. And his point on these like dead metaphors is really that like the reason you use a metaphor when you're writing is because the mind is a sort of visual engine. And so as you are reading anything, uh, you know, a metaphor and particularly a well-constructed metaphor. And what's hilarious yeah. is he, he, const he uses well-constructed metaphors throughout his criticism of poor metaphors. Yeah. Um, but a well-constructed metaphor actually like creates a visual image in your mind that makes the point a little bit more clear. And uh, yeah. I'm trying to, he, there was one he, so he, he used. He, yeah. It's great. There's one at the end. I'll see if I can find it. It's, he goes, it's something about a, the ink from our cuttlefish. Let me see if I can find it. Um, one second. Okay, here we go. The great when there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns, as it were, instinctively to long words and exhausted idioms like cuttlefish squ squirting out ink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you so, get this picture you know, in your mind when he says that of this cuttlefish squirting out ink, and, and it you're like, maps oh, yeah, very well. Exactly so, yeah, it's how yeah. people are using language right now to try to cover so then, up their real meaning. And that is, and they're kind of cuttlefish is kind of squirting away as well. They're like blasting people out with ink and like running away. And that's Here's kind another of like, one. Yep. I got, I got another one, sorry. This inflated style is itself a kind of euphemism. A mass of Latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow, blurring the outlines and covering up all the details. The great exactly. enemy of clear the great enemy of clear language is insincerity. And that's the yeah. real that's how it ties into politics, is that like the reason people speak in these vague ways, the reason people use tired metaphors, the reason people string together sentences like this is to achieve very specific and oftentimes evil um, in his in his mind uh, political aims. And you know yeah. that language like this, I've always been. I'll just say as a note, the re one of the reasons this was so compelling to me is because when I read nineteen, and obviously a lot of this these ideas are present in nineteen eighty four itself, and that was one of my favorite yeah. books growing up. You know, the Ministry of, what is it, the Ministry of, of Truth it, or the yeah. Ministry of Love is where the torture happens. And when I read 1984, I just thought... Ministry, of, ministry of, pe of Peace is where, yeah. you know, is, is the, you know. And, or, and you just know, the, ref the Department of Defense. Of, oh, yeah, wait, that's exactly right. what I was going to say. Exactly. And so from the, as soon as I oh, read wait, that's not the book. That's real life. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I read 1984, I was like, oh, my God, we have a literal Department of Defense that launches yeah. offensive... You know, foreign policy essentially. That is which, the arm yeah, of our military, is. where we we drop the bombs from our Department of Defense. We have a Department of Justice whose chief responsibility is putting people in cages. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so, like yeah, and yeah. so that's now, how language granted, has this insidious. Yeah. You know, he he would he would make the point that like you know whether however you feel about our foreign policy, however you feel about prison, he would make the point that language is being used very intentionally by politicians 
you know, to cover up things as they are. Rather than saying, like, someone should, you know, go to jail or someone should go to prison, you know, we could say the phrase, like, you know what, because you stole this thing, because you use these drugs, we are going to lock you in a cage for t five years, you know? And that has a very different meaning on someone's ears. If I told you, like, you know, anyone who smokes weed or anyone who uses heroin should be locked in a cage for t five years or for two years or something, People naturally recoil when they hear that phrase like, ooh, you're going to lock a person in a cage. But we've created this whole language around criminal justice where we say like, no, 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 this person's going to serve a prison sentence. They're going to serve a prison sentence. And that is intentionally vague to get away from the actual meaning of what's happening. Because yeah. when you, I don't know, and like using precise language, that's not to say that we shouldn't lock people in cages. It's just to say that let's be clear and precise in our language to describe what is happening here, because yeah. that's the only way that meaning can really be, a, a, you know, otherwise you're, you're obfuscating your meaning and you're doing it intentionally so to make it easier on people to digest. And for it allows powerful, the powerful institutions and powerful people to, you know, achieve, you know, oftentimes pretty dark outcomes. Uh, without the public outright, you know, uprising and, and saying this is unjust. It hides and prevents real justice with a capital J from happening um, when you obfuscate with language like this. And so I think that's so, just one of the central themes here that I love. Here's, here's a, to that point, here's a, a passage where he goes, he says exactly that. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Again, he's writing 1940s. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, dropping of atom bombs into Japan. These can be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which yeah. do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, euphemism question begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Right? So, like, you can defend these claims. Like you can, like you were saying, it's like people do need to go to jail. Like they do need to be put in cages in some cases. Justice does have to be served, but we don't want to talk about the explicit, the explicit. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And so he's talking, or, you know, at a higher level, like, you know, the dropping of an atom bomb, like that can be defended. I'm not sure if it's right, but you can defend it, but it, you have to talk about it in a, like a brutal way. Cause it is in fact brutal. The, the, the arguments around this on either direction are brutal. And to, to talk about it, you have to be brutal. But nobody wants... That doesn't serve the political ends and the political aims of the parties involved. And so instead, they shift to euphemism. They shift to vagueness. And so he goes, uh, Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air. The inhabitants driven out into the countryside. The cattle machine gun, machine gunned. The hut set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of Brutal. peasants are robbed of millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called quote transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. Um, you know, he goes on to list a few more of these with brutal clarity, and then describes what we the word the turns of phrase that people just throw around like without even thinking. Uh, to describe what's actually going on. And the actual language is not complicated. It's 
you know, millions of peasants are robbed of their farms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and I, so. I think like, uh, you know, he, he, he talks about, you know, again, this is 1940s. So he's, he's, he's reacting to obviously World War II. He's reacting to the rise of the Soviet state. And I think what's interesting is, you know, he, he comes at like some of these sort of uh, communist sympathizers that are present within Europe and like sort of leftist politics within Europe who would tacitly sort of approve of the Soviet regime based on, you know, again, political ideology. So it's like, I have a political ideology. I believe socialism or communism is like, you know, fundamentally going to lead to a better utopian sort of, you know, whatever, political economy for the people of Europe. And so I want to justify some of the actions I'm seeing of the Soviet empire, right? And he would, Orwell, you know, I think references right below the section you read, he, he kind of like, comes up with a, a quote that you can imagine any sort of leftist academic saying, which is saying, you know, to justify the actual methods of, you know, the Stalinist USSR, was saying, while freely conceding that the Soviet regime exhibits certain features which the humanitarian might be inclined to deplore, we must, I think, agree that a certain curtailment of the right to political opposition is an unavoidable co-commitment of transitional periods and that the rigors which the Russian people have been called upon to undergo must have been have, have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete achievement. And that's how yeah. that's like that's such a great quote. I mean it's made up, but that's he, like he, make, that's he makes that up. But it's he like, makes that up, but that's like how people write. That's how you'll hear neocons yeah. writing about, you know, and, imperialist and, uh, wars. Says, you'll hear Yeah. He says, I believe in killing off your opponents when you can get good results by doing so. That's what that's what you know, that's that's what you ought to say. That's the truth of what it's being that's said. That's the there. truth of what's what's happening. Yeah. yeah. I believe yeah, and yeah. It's just like that's the that's the good English. The top that that sentence is good English. The the constructed example is bad English. And uh, Yeah. Well we must so admit I, I, that the methods might be less than dis, you know, might be a, a thing distasteful. You yeah. know, it's like by method yeah. you mean killing political opposition. That's what you're saying. Well, that's the so meaning that's being hidden. And what's fascinating is okay, so he goes through I mean, there's two one thing I'd just like to say briefly is like I always whenever I write now, after reading this, whenever I write, this essay is in the back of your mind. Not because I'm like not not on a political ideology level, just like how to write well. This is like it has to be one of the best passages of guy, the best writing guides in the world. You know, if you read yeah. this and keep this in the back of your mind, read it once every couple of months if you're writing regularly, because this will make your writing better. Uh, this, this, re, this reading this will reignite the insistence on clarity, precision, um, brevity, uh, and so that's good. But on the on the second the second thing is talking about politics and talking about how this relates to politics is. You, you said people write like this to be with to obscure their aims to, to obscure their actual aims with kind of aims that are more uh, acceptable I think there's that going on he says that but there's also this kind of like without even thinking right in which like so oh yeah um, it's unconscious because everyone's yeah, talking you're like unconsciously this. using it exactly and uh this he goes this reduced state of consciousness basically is what is happening because you don't have to think you can just you can create sentences and string together paragraphs uh, that are entirely filled up with these sorts of generic metaphors, generic turns of phrase, generic words that don't really mean much at all, but that you can string together and reduces the degree to which you have to think hard and try to construct precise sentences. I have always said 
the thing that the thing that is so awesome about writing is not the result, but is that in everybody's heads they think they've got these great ideas, they think they've got these good arguments. When you put the pen to paper to to actually articulate those things is very difficult. Um, very and it difficult. turns out some of the some of these grand schemes and ideas and crystal clear arguments that you thought you had are not because you're trying to write them down and you can't write them down. It's because the ideas are actually shit. Um, yeah. And so writing has. A, a, an insistence on precise writing has this benefit of forcing you to think way harder about your ideas and about your arguments and exactly. about your beliefs because you have in order because clear writing makes you do that now the trait the problem is that if you're not do if you don't if you're not insisting on clear writing and you're allowing yourself to just regurgitate strings of whatever you're able to just take whatever you believe and without even thinking just spit it out into paper and and this kind of this back this backward debased english language that he's describing allows for that in a way um and i, I he starts with this you know i think that that's such a good point and and it's it's this is sort of an you know transitioning away from the the way political structures use language because yeah, yeah to your point the more general idea here of you know the sloppier your language is the sloppier your thinking is and the sloppier your thinking is the sloppier the English or language that you then use. And it becomes this sort yeah. of feedback loop. He actually starts the essay by saying, you know, something along these lines. He describes, uh, I'll just read a, a, a little yeah. section here, but, um, you know, now it is clear that the decline of a language must ultimately have political and economic causes. It is not due simply to the bad influence of this or that individual writer, but an effect can become a cause reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form and so on indefinitely. He goes on to say, English language becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the, slovenly, the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. And that's, right. it's just like so, it's so brutal when you, when you reflect on that. And I think this is, out, even outside of writing, although I agree, that is the most extreme form when you try to take an idea and write it down. You have to, that's like the, the real crucible of, of thought. But even in, you know, the way people speak to each other in dialogue, yeah. verbally, no, it's the same. I, this, is, this is the same thing, you know. And using clear and precise language to you know, speak as true as you can. He he says later in there, let the let the what is above all needed is to let the meaning choose the word, not the other way about. I mean that's yeah. it's so true. It's like when you have meaning in your mind and you're trying to convey that to another person, stick to that meaning. Hold on to it. I'll try to really understand what it is that you think and use the most precise language and metaphor occasionally where helpful, but use the most precise language possible to transfer that meaning to the other person. And you can do that yeah. when you're speaking and you can definitely, it's needed when you're writing. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm sure I've said it on the podcast, but you know, I say it all the time. I always, I run around going political, whatever is unbecoming. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I got that from here. I must've, you know, I must've constructed that from reading this language, you know, this essay years ago. But um, that this, this idea that I have, I've, I've had, which is that people regurgitating, I, you know, I, rereading this has made it clear exactly what I'm, what I'm thinking of, which yeah. is regurgitating phrases and constructions and series of, of talking, ways of talking about things. And just cause, cause they've heard it in, in, in essays or they've heard it in, on TV shows, they've heard it from newscasters and, or arguments, just like, 
entire arguments that they're just like used to hearing on their their preferred source and then when you're talking to them they just turn on they hear it regurgitate it to you and they haven't even they haven't had done the thinking required to really think about what their what their what their meaning is they're just they're letting the meaning flow based on this word that they know is good from their source i like i like person x on the news they say this phrase i'm gonna take that spit it out and whatever the meaning the meaning is irrelevant um and so that's what i always have meant when i say political rhetoric because i'm becoming like i just it's it's unbecoming to go into conversations and just say things that you've heard other people say <laughs> um phrases stone yeah phrases yeah lingo like yeah lingo <laughs> Yeah, and, all um, of that. and and it, it's right. I think writing is a, a it, it makes you think harder. But if you in a conversation now, of course, Orwell does a good job of admitting this. He says, "I've probably broken all these rules in this essay." Um, that's no it's one's hard perfect. to do. Yeah, it's hard to do. But you have to you have to consciously think about it and try your best to be precise and try your best to do this. And and in, in this conversation, we're probably doing it. We we are we are so it's uh, so embedded in our in our day-to-day that um it's hard to separate ourselves from it i think which is an interesting which is an interesting place to take this conversation which is it's amazing to me that he's writing this in 1946 because it's like this applies perfectly to language today oh uh, dude so maybe, I, I just want to maybe yeah, the I... maybe the only thing that's different is that it's whereas he was able to see that this hasn't it hasn't always been like this 1946 he's like hey it didn't used to be this bad uh, I think you know. I, this is this is this is the only language I know, and this is all the writing I've ever read that's contemporary is is like this. Um, yeah, largely. It, and I just want to say a few things on like you know refracting this essay through the present. The first thing yeah. that I was thinking of when I was reading this was the Iraq War and the you know terrorists hate us for our freedom, like sentences like yeah. that. The New York <laughs> Times articles justifying the Iraq War. The way that the Defense Department talked about, you know, oh, you know, what was it, preemptive strikes, stuff like that. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to bomb these people without provocation, something like, you know, it's like the way language was used in the build up to the Iraq war and after in the aftermath of September 11th was and, you know, maybe even extending it further, the Patriot Act and the way we've taught the way the government talks about the the wide scale surveillance of its people listening to everyone's conversations all the way that's described is one I want to put that in a bucket as like one particular area where this essay is just like rings so true that's sort of like Bush yeah. era but then also you know obviously thinking about like the Twitter era thinking about like the current movement on the left even and the those sort of like raw emotional rhetoric you're hearing from you know as you called it like the woke movement you know of 2020 thinking about language and how language is being used in now I would say that the left actually you know in some ways is maybe more true to this in that there is some sort of well I don't know no I I would push back it's it's pure emotional it's very different than what he's talking about here you know he's talking about the sort of like official vague euphemism based approach to like concealing meaning and now we've almost created this new way to conceal meaning behind raw emotion you know and And raw experience and subjective experience yeah and so I would be really fascinated around that yeah, lingo, lingo around, around that. that. But it's all about emotion and, and like trying to drive and persuade and, and you know create like political change 
by leveraging like yeah just the emotional emotion of the subjective experience and i would love to hear yeah. orwell's response to i would love to he- see orwell on twitter is i guess my yeah my t- <laughs> well the thing is i think he would be he would be horrified obviously. <laughs> um, he'd be horrified and not I mean, not to say that it's not on the right i think the right uh has its own things but on, on the language front on contemporary language front i maybe maybe it's because this is i don't read as much on the right as i do on the left i'm not as exposed to it maybe i don't know maybe that's just on twitter but like the language around like kind of yeah like critical race theory contemporary conversations around race and uh I, I'm not, I, mean, no, I want to expand it beyond race, beyond around, you know, capitalism, the nexus of capitalism, colonialism, race, and history, and uh, questions of justice therein. Uh, maybe <laughs> I'm committing, maybe I'm committing the fallacy that I'm trying to argue about right now, but, but you get into conversations around this stuff, and you read the stuff coming out about these questions, and it's impenetrable. It's, it, the writing is impenetrable. It's so hard to discern what someone means uh yeah you know words are thrown out that uh just simply are impossible to decipher because now no nobody uh nobody knows what it means like so i you know the other day I was you sound like a about, nazi right now so i know uh, yeah well there you go it's like um the uh you know it's like the question i, had, I was having a question someone said let's talk i'd be really interested to just talk about white supremacy and something, something, something about that. And I was like, oh yeah, I'd like to talk about that, but I don't think you and I, at this point, we'd have to have a preliminary conversation to even talk about what, what white supremacy means today. Because now yeah. white supremacy gets thrown around to mean whatever anybody wants. So you put it into a sentence, people put it into sentences just as a placeholder. You'll hear, like we were talking about, when you're talking to somebody, they'll, just say, they'll go blah, 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 and they'll, have, and they'll throw white supremacy in there as well. They'll say, and you don't know what they mean by that. I don't know what they mean by that. It's like, Real it's quick, not useful. What's very interesting is that in the essay, you know, Orwell mm-hmm. caught on to this too. And he points out that like, even in 1946, fascism didn't mean anything. Democracy yeah. doesn't mean anything. When someone even says the word democracy or democratic or free, freedom or liberty, whatever, all these words, everyone has, there's a million different definitions and gradations of these words so that they're effectively useless. They are effectively emotional placeholders to say like that is undemocratic. It's like, well, what do you mean by democratic? That is fascist? What do you mean by fascist? Yeah, and it's only gotten worse. And people don't want to define it because if they define it, that would require them to still... And also you have to take a position. So I I think it was a... It's like he's talking about democracy and it's like, uh, what does he say? It's almost universally felt that when we call a, co- a country democratic, we are praising, praising it. Consequently, the defenders of every kind of regime claim that it is democracy. And, and, fear that, and fear that we might have to stop using the word if we tied it down to any one meeting, right? Like if, if democracy meant one thing, then like you couldn't call it the Democratic Republic of Con- Congo. And like, you know, all these like various like uses of democratic. Um, and that's just like this like outrageous level. But it North goes Korea's down democratic. as... Yeah, exactly. So that's, those are like outrageous outliers, but that's it's the same mechanism where, like when it, like I said, like I said today, the question of like white supremacy is a is a word that is just is like this where you or even racist. It, 
Yeah, and, oh yeah, exactly. Racism or racist. Nobody wants to define it because if they define it, then, you know, someone cannot be that, you know? Or you can, you can make the argument that you're not racist or that you're not a white supremacist or that this is not part of white supremacy or this isn't part of racism. But insofar as it, it exists in this amorphous, it means whatever I want, and I just throw it into sentences that together mean whatever I want. And the only point of this sentence is for me at the end to be able to say, if you disagree with this sentence, you're wrong, you know, you're a racist. Um, not to say, you know, and I, this is me being, maybe I'm getting into like uh, reactionary, uh, reactionary what, liberalism or whatever that exists today, but. Well, I, I don't think I'm, you're I'm, saying that racism super, isn't real. I'm, you're not saying white supremacy isn't real. You're just saying that the yeah, no, like, like, rhetoric it's, and dialogue it's, it's, is current right no, now is imprecise, it, intentionally so. And I think that's coming out of the quarter of the left. Now, I'm not saying there's not this going on in other places, but right now in America, coming out of this summer in particular, where question conversations around race were first and foremost, uh, it's been so hard to have conversations on this front explicitly. And, 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 and to me, it seems like there's this contingent of the left today that, and the, I think it's left. I don't even want to use the word liberals because I don't think anybody describes themselves liberal that actually thinks this. But there's this contingent where it's like they don't want you, the writers and the, and the elites who use this language, don't want to talk about it, don't want to talk about it, don't want to be precise, don't want to be clear. And then the people that read that stuff and go, go home and go to wherever their local politics are happening regurgitate this stuff. And nobody can argue with them because nobody knows what's go- what what anybody anything means anymore. Um, and it's it's disturbing, you know. And it's and it's, <laughs> it's problem it's it's problematic because it's like you can't have conversations. We're gonna have to mediate these tensions and like solve problems. But you can't have prob- you can't solve problems if you can't agree on language. Um, and right now it's like been very difficult. I do think there's some pushback happening from the the liberal liberal uh, liberal left, uh, but. Uh, that's a quite different question, but I mean, it's just, it's so relevant today. So, so relevant today. I think to wanting, this is just an, this is just a minor example. I'm not sure if it's exactly what's going on, but it's a pretty good example of just language being abused, which is, um, ACB, Amy Coney Barrett is, uh, being, uh, has been nominated for the Supreme court. Uh, she's been doing the hearings where all the senators ask her questions and she defends herself and interrogate her, blah, blah, blah. Same same deal. We don't we don't have to talk about that necessarily. But at one point, one of the Democratic senators was asking her, and Amy Coney Barrett, in her response, said something like, "Blah blah blah, sexual depend regardless of their sexual preference." You know, use that construction regardless of their sexual preference or independent whatever. Said something some something sexual preference and went on as a way to kind of describe um, sexuality, the category of sexuality, and. Within you know, within minutes, hours, days, there's a whole stream of tweets and articles and essays and hot takes and you know condemnations about her use of sexual preference as um, as in is as wrong and as kind of bad. It's like kind of like it's like a it'd be like using um it'd be it'd be like using Oriental to to describe Asian people like you know that that, that like yeah. you're using the wrong word. It's 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 unthoughtful and it's cruel and it's mean and it's, and it reflects that, you, you know, you, you're kind of a, not a racist, but a homophobic or whatever. Um, and it's like everybody. And then meanwhile, everybody else is looking around going like, wait, I thought everybody used sexual preference. And like, literally they, someone went and screenshotted like webster.com and like three days, like three days before or a week before this, this hearing, 
sexual preference was listed as like the description of it was like just like very neutral and then webster.com you know webster dictionary the webster dictionary company that day after the after the hearing and after the uh the ensuing outrage um and prior to the counter outrage uh changed their definition to mean and to, to, for, and to make it say that it was derogatory that it's a derogatory usage so just amy coney Barrett using sexual preference and the outrage webster.com changes it to be to reflect the, the outrage around it and like and then of course everybody goes and looks up all these examples of all the outraged people using sexual preference in their own language all the time in the last two years like all the time it's a normally it's it's normally it's accepted it's normal everybody uses this this, this usage sexual preference um and it was com- I, considered completely normal until amy coney barrett used it and the, the outrage machine latched onto it and now now and now the definition of that has shifted just on that swing and now it's no longer that word is just no longer able to be used the way it was before and yeah, it's just I like mean, it's this sort of like this sort of like this swings around what language means and this like the rapidly changing definitions of words that you, you're not able even able to get fixed and therefore you're not able to have a conversation because like well what do I use in place of that now um, because and if I use something else today is it going to be is it going to be deemed to mean something else tomorrow um and, and it's it's very difficult to now in to, a way I, I, I want to just say I agree this is a, that's an incredible example um, and it ha- it's like and wow it's, it's an incredible crystallizing example and you know sexual preference I believe they were condemning it by saying like you know to say sexual preference implies that you think homosexuality or you know is a, is choice, a choice right, right. And which I fair enough argument I mean is it? Be- Fair I mean, because I've always, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I just learned of this as being, I just learned that this is not what you're supposed to say as well during the same time. And when I say you're not supposed or to, it's like the whole certain- world just learned because everybody used sexual preference. Even the defenders yeah. of like, even the people on the left were using sexual preference. I was using sexual preference to defend gay rights. You yeah, know, for the last yeah. ten years, and I've been saying like, and you know, everybody we should never Even discriminate the... based on sexual preference. And I had and not. Yeah. There's not a single part of me that was implying it, yeah. in using that phrase that being gay is a choice or not. In fact, it wasn't. It's neutral on that particular issue. You know, I just I'm used it as a way op- to describe openly yeah. that you know sexual freedom. I don't. I don't know what the word is now. Um, yeah. But I'm happy you know, to ha- have the definition change too. I'm happy to have words sure. shift. But now just here's the, the interesting point, though, is that the left, at least, the way you know, I was thinking this while you were describing this particular con- you know controversy yeah. here, um, is that the left travesty. is actually travesty. The ex- the left is actually um, recognized the power of words, right? And so while yeah. this might be a particularly silly example, I think to the left's credit. One of the areas, you know, and probably to the detriment of focusing on policy, I would say, because, you know, the left has really spent a lot of time and say over the last 10 years really fixating on language and what words mean and what they imply and how they make people feel and how the words and phrases frame arguments. That's where a lot of energy and focus has been placed. And in some yeah. ways, that that's actually kind of what yeah. Orwell is I, saying. They're trying to tighten up the precision of language so as to tighten up the precision of meaning. But I think there's a whole other end, you know, half of the 
reason that this is happening, the redefinition of language, what's allowed, what's not, how we should frame things, how we should describe things, is in a sensitivity to the importance of precise language. The other half of the, the this group is really just using you know, there's this discussion that's happening about how should we structure words to describe people in a way that's inclusive and, and, you know, leads people to, you know, arms people, pushes us towards justice, recognizing the political power of language, I think, which is what Orwell is sort of getting at in this essay, is that language, the words you use have political implications. The left has recognized that. Now, what there's a there's a positive aspect of that that I just want to, you know, put a pin in is you know, um, the way we structure phrases, words, whatever, they, they, they are important and they shape the way we interact with the world. And they shape our identities. That being said, there's a whole other subset of this group that is then, you know, already digested all the literature on which phrases to use and which ones are not. And, you know, you should say Latinx, not like Hispanic, not Latino or Latina. You know, these sorts of, they've, they've, they're at the forefront of these discussions on, you know, social, the intersection of social justice and language. And they use the latest and greatest phrases as a way to hammer people uh, who haven't been immersed in that literature people yeah, who are just using like words that they've ever used they've always used not recognize it you know again it's just like they're they're just out here what? trying to do the best they can any and rather than educate people on the issue or explain like how language can be used differently and more precisely to be maybe more emotionally um you know i guess comfortable for populations that you may be not thinking of rather than you know catching them up on this the latest and greatest literature here uh they're just hammering people and calling them yeah. because you know as bigots as racist as homophobic yeah. because you would dare use some phrase that was okay you know five years yesterday. ago or even yesterday or, yeah yeah well no i think i think i think you're right i think also um it's like there's there is i think it's crucial to say there is honest there are honest criticisms and there is honest, uh, thoughtful work going into un unpacking language, unpacking meaning, understanding what the implications of word choice are. Like you said, I think that was, I, I'm sim super sympathetic to that project because um, I think it is something that, for example, Orwell didn't even think about at all. Like, I don't think he, he's talking about language, but he's not even thinking about language on that level of what are the implied meanings around and, and, and how around does that word limit choice. people's identity or yeah shape yeah the totally he, he's not even exposed to that at all and so you know it's because it, it's not it's before he's before that time so there's good work being done there I, I don't think it's necessarily bad for the english language that were that sort of critical work around language is being done it's just like you said there's these people that have rec gone from honest uh honest thinking and exploration to political tactics and political power yeah. and have understood that yeah. this this the language that the academics and the language that the, the thinkers and the writers who are kind of approaching this thoughtfully they've understood that the the, the structure that and the phraseologies and the and the lingo that these people are using can be weaponized politically and and it's and it's yeah. and that's where that so it's like they're copy and pasting the jargon like they're taking the jargon that can be used thoughtfully and, and weaponizing it in, in political tweets and political rhetoric. Um, and that's a bad thing. And so, of course, in, in countering that... It's also and I'm using that word have, yeah. uh, intentionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's undemocratic. They're like, what? 
<laughs> it's, no, it is, it is though, in the sense that like you're dictating how people should speak too. That's another part of it. Yeah. There is some, uh, you know, an authoritarian perspective here. Instinct there, for sure. Instinct there, yeah, where it's like, no, 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 or this pathology. is the only way to, it's like we've done a lot of, the ivory tower and the social scientists within it have have been in the lab, you know, thinking about the nature of language and, and how it reflects and on identity. Sorry, sorry, all Latino people and Latina people of the world, uh, turns out your language is, you know, misogynistic and we're going to, you know, sorry, it's, we're doing Latinx now. That's yeah. You know, we were going to hand down this this yeah. gift from the uh, that, tower to to yeah. everyone. Thousands of years it. of thousands of years of of you know cultural tradition. Eh, sorry, misogynistic. We're going with Latinx now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I I can't think of anything more racist. <laughs> you know, not more, not racist, but like culture, like the delete the the. the uh, the willingness of people to impose their ideas of what is right and wrong onto another language is bonkers to me. Uh, in that yeah. example, the Latinx example is just egregious. It's like Anya came Elizabeth across Warren, an example of someone who was using who was writing folks with an X now. Folks. Wait, what? Folks with an they were it, because to to sort of emphasize you know some of the, um, you know I guess sexism inherent in the word or, or structural I don't know what what the problem was with the word folks with like or yeah, like, like maybe. folk yeah folks F-O-L-K-S is now being written yeah. F-O-L-X to yeah. just to so, just so, sort of yeah. you know also it, include uh, everyone to just make sure that folks isn't you know yeah because folks is kind of like you know patriarch impl- implies like a sort of uh, classic western patriarchal kind of cultural construction so yeah we need to we need to uh, burn that down and, so uh, we're gonna go it. with folks with a, with an X. It's like, oh, right, sweet. We'll just swap the S and the X in the alphabet. Like, is that gonna solve it? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's wild. I I feel like we've not done this essay justice, but it's just because this essay is so transcendentally beautiful. Um, if it transcends time, uh, it is so relevant today. It's it's bonkers how relevant this essay is today. Uh, you read this and you go walk around, you go spend some time on Twitter, you go read government questions. You, know, it, it, you, you mentioned, oh, the Iraq war and like the obfuscation op- oh, yeah. therein. I mean, that's um, like I want to spend more time on that and too. But I think I, that's I mean, one of the things, you, you've always talked about that. And I, don't, and I, and I think it's, that's a great example. It doesn't have to be politics though. So no, he it goes doesn't. on to, it can be, so he, he was describing, um, he describes literary criticism, right? And art criticism. Uh, and, and, even in that in that domain, bad writing is is bad writing. Um, and so he goes, the outstanding feature of Mr. X's work is its living quality. Another person might write, the immediately striking thing about Mr. X's work is its peculiar deadness. And the problem is, he's, quote, the reader accepts this as a simple difference of opinion. If words like black and white were used, the jargon, the jargon words dead and living would be, would be you'd be, cle- it'd be clear that they were wrong. Um, so it's just like people write like this, not just on politics, not just as like government agencies trying to just, you know, distract the populace and deceive the populace. It's it's on any domain. People write poorly and and with vagueness and with imprecision, um, sometimes without thinking about it. And I think there's like that unconscious, like uh, unconscious thing going on, which so it doesn't have to be like with this evil intent. And yeah. then sometimes I think very explicitly like. 
I think sometimes it very much is explicit, like you said, like they know what they're doing and they know yeah. the way that they're deploying language and they're doing it because they believe that it's justified based on their politics. Um, I think there's a, there's a great word of this, there's a great point of this, which I think to connect it back to why does language matter for politics is that um, it will generally be found wherever, wherever good writing is found it will be found that that writer is some kind of rebel expressing his <laughs> private opinions and not a party line. Orthodoxy of whatever color seems to demand a lifeless imitative style, right? Yeah. So yeah. if orthodoxy, whatever the domain, whatever your Trumpist politics, orthodoxy, whatever, leftist orthodoxy. anywhere you go, you're going to find bad writing defending orthodoxies. Good writing is like inherently rebellious, um, is inherently problematic to the powers that be because it it pierces through the you know the vague generalities that they've constructed to like advance their cause and so uh it doesn't have to be politics it could be like within the domain of like film criticism or within sports writing you know like I, clear writing is just so constantly uh hard to find that when it does show up it that person is like instantly like stands out like a beacon and as a problem and as an op you know opposition figure. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know although it doesn't have to be writing in the political sphere, I think he does make an interesting point also that sort of like all of this language inherently is political because yeah. every and and everything fundamentally even sports writing is political and so yeah. I guess you know we're gonna we're trying to especially I guess, wrap, especially wrap true these here. days. Yeah, but I'm going to just read, I'll read this one, my last quote that I think is, I love is okay. from this was just, uh, and then if you have anything else you want to wrap up with, but in yeah. our age, in our age, there is no such thing as keeping out of politics. All issues are political issues and politics itself is a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. When the general atmosphere is bad, language must suffer. <laughs> and yep. I, I think that's just, I don't know. Pretty, yeah. yeah, 40, what was that, 80 years ago he wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. And right, it's just, and it's, and it's so true today. Um, so yeah, if you have an, a, a quote you want to send us home yeah, with, I'm, we, I'm, could, I'm, we could I'm sign look, off, but. They will construct your sentences, sentences for you, even think your thoughts for you to a certain extent. And they will perform the important service of partially concealing your your meaning even from yourself. It is this point that the special connection between politics and the debasement of language becomes clear. Amen. I think that I yeah, so you know that's the connection between good language and good politics and poisonous politics and debased language is that uh, you obscure meaning with bad with bad English. Even from yourself. <laughs> Even from yourself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I encourage right. everyone to read this essay and to, yeah, be precise out there. <laughs> Sharpen yeah, the I words. Mean, it's, yeah, it's just inspiring. It's inspiring whether you're a writer. If you're a writer, then you have to read this. I think it ought to be required for, for uh, reading. If you're just a thinker, even a, even an amateur thinker, thinker like, your two, uh, like your two hosts here, <laughs> it just... It, you know, this inspires me to think clearer, to, yeah. to speak clearer, uh, and not, not clearly we have a long way to go.
Um, but <laughs> it's, it's inspiring to say, okay, like to arm yourself with Orwell's thoughts here and to like try to take that into you where, with you wherever you go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, okay. uh, yeah, we'll leave you with that. That's a, hopefully, you know, I'll be able to actually edit this one and put it together <laughs> and get it out there. But uh, I just checked my audacity. I think we're good. Okay, I think we're good too. I got an hour and thirty, so I, I think we're, I think we did it. I just passed it. Yeah, I just passed an hour and thirty. Yeah, cool. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah. So we'll see you next time. Uh, might be a week from now, or it might be uh, you know six months. But we'll keep you guessing. <laughs> All right. In front of the screen, we stare at the light. I'll be brother each night Behind the eyes We feel ourselves shrink And slowly forget How it feels to Freedom is slavery, my